Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. You know, terminology is really, really important. If you bring up that word Lime at the wrong time and at the wrong place, you could have denial of care. You could be treated as if you're uh, mentally ill. Um, there, there's big issues with that. This podcast is sponsored by the Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lime Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and acupuncturist McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 191 with author David Kent. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn what band intensity means on the Western blot test and how it relates to a clinical diagnosis, what it means to challenge Borrelia and why it can make treatment more effective, and why David decided to pursue both an herbal and antibiotic treatment route. Thank you, Aurora, and be sure to listen all the way to the end of this podcast for a special surprise. As you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join us from all over the world, from Israel to Australia and from Pakistan to Panama. Also, a big thank you to all you longtime Lyme ninjas. Aurora and I really appreciate you listening. And we'd like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. We're glad you tuned in. This week, our top 10 tune-in cities are... Starting at number 10, Olaf, Kansas. Number 9, Hibbing, Minnesota. Number 8, Panorama City, California. Number 7, Boulder, Colorado. Number 6, Sacramento, California. Number 5, Los Angeles, California. Number four, Seattle, Washington. Number three, Atlanta, Georgia. Number two, Denver, Colorado. And number one this week is San Francisco, California. We really knocked it out of the park this week. California did. Yeah, they did. Uh, do you know your Lime scorer? If not, do yourself a favor and head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and fill out the Lime Ninja symptom tracker. It's free. Okay, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about today's guest, David Kent. 
David Kent became sick in 2012. After years of being bed-bound and suffering from severe neurological symptoms where the slightest sound would cause him pain, he finally found a doctor who would believe him and was officially diagnosed with Lyme disease in 2016. He wrote his book, The Lyme Book, for family, friends, and caregivers, so his wife, a non-native English speaker, would have an accessible reference to understand his illness. David Kent lives and teaches university classes in Korea while pursuing treatment for his Lyme disease in Australia. Thank you, Aurora. And here is our interview with author David Kent. Hello, David. This is McKay Rippey from Lyme Ninja Radio. Hello, McKay. Uh, nice to talk to you. Or should I say cheers, mate? Well, yeah, I am from Australia, so uh, you could say that. uh, (laughs) Right now, actually, I'm living in Korea. So um, I've been here since 1995, actually. Oh, my goodness. That's quite quite a time. So before we get started, why Korea? Uh, It just happened per chance. Uh, Originally, I came here to teach English, but... uh, I am a researcher with a, with a doctorate in, you know, in specializing in information technology and educational research. So uh, I moved away quickly from teaching English into teaching content courses and uh, teaching PhD students and uh, master's degree students. And I've been doing that uh, for about 15 years or so now. So, um, yeah, so where I'm working now at a, at a university, we have dual degree programs with the states. So we have um, students who are doing uh, they're masters with St. Cloud State, and we have uh, students that we prepared for the PhD program at Penn State as well. So, um, yeah, most of my students are international students, so Canadians, U.S. Uh, residents and things like that, which is interesting because I don't get to teach many Koreans. So <laughs> that's, that's quite, quite interesting. That's it's amazing how international higher ed is these days, actually. Yeah, it's all moving to be online and uh, a lot of blended learning classes and and things like that. A lot, a lot of crossover, a lot of movement between countries of people uh, that's been increasing the last, I think, 15, 20 years. And so, of course, um, ticks move that way and so do diseases. So They certainly do. And did does your profession, did your profession, has your profession prepared you to write a book? Because going through your book, there uh, there are more footnotes in your book than I think I've seen in anything since I've read uh, Gary Taub, one of Gary Taub's books about 15 years ago. That's actually the – well, there's a couple of reasons why I wrote the book. Um, one reason is I could not find anything that was actually cited. So I would find things on the Internet that would just say blah, 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 this percentage, that percentage – and there was no link to any research. Um, there was no way to prove that those percentages were actually correct. Um, so, you know, doing my own research, and quite often people with Lyme and, and like myself have to become our own doctors and find out what's going on ourselves. So I tried to, you know, find out what people were saying, what the questions they had, and trying to find my own answers to them, because a lot of times I had those questions as well. But some of the statistics did not match, so they might be contradictory, and I couldn't see you know, where they were coming from. So I've been doing research, publishing in journals and things like that for, for years. Uh, yeah, I just took that approach to writing a, uh, 
you know, writing the book. Um, so that's that's the first reason. The second reason is my wife is a is a non-native speaker uh, of English, so I wanted to write something that she could understand very simply and um, give all the basic information that she would need to know because she's not going to be able to read anything and she's only going to get the information from me. And I thought a lot of people are going to be in that same kind of boat, uh, particularly my family members. You know, even I told them that this is what I've got. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and I'm sure that they did not go out to the Internet and really look up what it means and what it is and how it feels to live with it. And um, that chapter, which is chapter 13 in the book, what how it feels to have Lyme, is, is actually the first chapter I wrote. And that's the main reason why I wrote that book, to show my wife and my family what it feels like to have Lyme. It's an amazing document that you put together. It is. Thank you. I was as I was going through it, the thought that kept coming through my mind was, "This is a textbook. It it really is. I mean, I, I've had many books cross my desk, and I've got about a half dozen sitting on them right now about Lyme disease, but yours is so precise and so comprehensive that it 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 deserves a special place on most people's bookshelves." It, and in well, every doctor's office. I mean, the, thank thank you for saying that. Yeah. That's that's actually interesting you say the doctor's office because when I looked at all the other books online and I you know I got I've got a fair number of them and uh, they were all written for the patient and the medical professional. Nothing was written for the family members. So I I thought it was very important to make something that that did cross over into that segment that family members could read and understand. And if they wanted to see where the statistics and the information was coming from, they could follow that up with, with the resources. And of course, um, working at a university, I have, I have access to a lot of the journals and I can get behind the paywalls for the uh, journal articles that a lot of uh, people in the general public could not do. I have a spy for myself. I send abstracts and the titles and the authors and often she's able to <laughs> send them to me. It's, it's right. wonderful resource. Otherwise it's simply cost prohibitive. It's 20, 30 well, bucks for each article. Yeah, right. If you're not subscribing to the journal. Right. And some of the, uh, some of the chapters in the book have like 120, you know, 200 references. So um, yeah, to, to pay for all of those would be quite prohibitive compared to, um, well, even the, the cost of um, just trying to get a diagnosis for myself is uh, I worked it out a couple of weeks ago. I've spent um, yeah, over half a million Australian dollars. That's incredible. It is. Um, it is. It's phenomenal. Uh, well, it, you know, in my case, my diagnosis took nearly five years. Um, I went to four general practitioners in, in Australia initially. Um, and then I went to nine specialists in Korea. And then I ended up going back to Australia to um, try and get the final diagnosis. So, um, you know, counting the flights that I had to take um, as well into that, that number and uh, all the tests that, you know, I had to take uh, MRIs and everything else and all of that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal amount of money when you think about it. Now, it really, if you, if you could chart out that money, did any is there any peak? Is there one category that just stands out, like airfare or or, or MRI test or something like that, or is it fairly <laughs> evenly distributed? 
It's fairly evenly distributed. And I mean, the money I'm spending, I'm spending on the credit card. So the credit card gives me flight miles, which means the actual flights, a lot of them were free. Thank goodness for that. uh, Yeah. But I mean, the doctor in Australia just happened, you know, to find a a Lyme literate one, you know, early on, but I didn't know that that's what he was or that's what I had. So, um, yeah, it took two two years in Korea that I was bed bound, having hallucinations, muscle aches, muscle weakness, light temperature, sound sensitivity, um, all of these things being being really really cold in the middle of summer, and the, you know pumping the gas up in the apartment to you know thirty nine degrees Celsius. I'm not quite sure what that is Fahrenheit, maybe one hundred and fourteen or something. Plenty hot. <laughs> yeah, really really hot. So yes. so hot that uh, my wife had to move out. She had to move out. She couldn't uh-huh. stay in the house. Wow. And um, which was good for for us because she, uh, you know, even if she walked and put a cup in the sink, the sound sensitivity would would cause me pain, actually. So, um, yeah, so that was good. So she moved out for a little while and um, that helped uh, help with things a a lot. So you had Um, severe neurological Lyme. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Bart rage as well. Bart's my main. uh, Bartonella is my main issue. Yeah, definitely had issues with that. I mean, I couldn't couldn't even go shopping. I mean, uh, the cart, the shopping cart was holding me up. Um, I couldn't walk around. Hallucinations, loss of the sense of time, cognition problems, severe cognition problems. Um, I couldn't remember things at all. And uh, just um, even my IQ, I think um, I definitely have lost IQ points. I can tell that now talking with peers that, you know, I'm not up in the conversation sometimes. And, you know, it's, so it's not just about taking longer to do things, which it is, or getting things done that I couldn't do before. There's actually a sense of loss there. Um, so how do you deal with that? Because that's significant. And so many people in so many ways, when they've been laid low by Lyme and other infections, lose themselves. They do. Um, and there's uh, there's actually... Um, a quote in the book, I might be able to read that for you if I can find it. Um, and I think the person that I'll quote um, has my take on, on, on what happened as well. What they say is, for me, I see it as a death. The life I lived before my illness is gone, and I'll probably never be able to go back to doing many of the things I used to love. And if so, never with the same intensity. So I choose to view myself as being resurrected. I have a new body. I have the opportunity to live a completely different style of life and meet and interact with a completely new group of people in a new way. Today, I live with my illness shrouded in a cloak of invisibility. And if you have Lyme, then you will wear that cloak, too. And for me, I think that really does sum up what's happened to me. I, you know, I can no longer really live that life that I lived before. Um, I used to exercise, run every day and, you know, lift weights. I can't do that anymore. I used to, used to fly airplanes. I have my Korean pilot license as well as an Australian pilot license. And I can't, I just don't have the cognition to do that anymore. Um, so I really have to, had to work out a way to move on with life because you don't want to, you know, keep thinking about the past and and getting stuck in that route because that's kind of a dangerous route to get into. And um, you don't want to have those negative feelings or thoughts really. You want to move on and do the best that you can with with what you have. So part of that and trying to get my brain working again and getting the cognition going was actually writing the book. Uh, It helped a lot, really a lot. Do you remember the point where you came to the realization that, oh, my goodness, I need to reinvent myself, or as your 
the person you quoted said resurrect. Yeah. Um, was that conscious? Yes. I made a conscious decision to do that. Um, basically, I was undiagnosed for five years, and I've really had my diagnosis now for about eight months. Um, so I'd say three months into that diagnosis, I thought, I finally know what's going on. Now, now I understand what's happening to people. And, you know, writing the book helped me understand what's happening to people and myself and uh, what we all need to know about. And um, that's when I made that decision to write the book and to move on and to really get started on focusing on living life because you can't, you know, it's been, you know, I'm looking at my, you know, my issues for six years. I'm thinking, well, I can't, you know, it's been six years. What can I do? I can't move back to, to that. You know, perhaps I can, but I'm not going to be able to do that now. I'm not going to be able to do that while I'm under treatment and treatment might take, you know, a year, six months, you know, several years. Nobody knows. You know, it's individual, it's in individual treatment and it's uh, an individualized disease and an individualized route that people really have to experience themselves. You brought up an interesting point that your lead infection, that's my word, is hmm. Bartonella. Yes. And you have a term, and I can't find it right now in front of me, but you call it like multi-species or multi-infection. Um, you know, we're stuck with the label Lyme because that was what it was named first. But you bring up such an important point that this is a whole gamut. It's a, it's a whole... Tick, gut-filled uh, right. uh, types of so bacteria. If we're talking about, and that's the issue too, um, you know, terminology is really, really important. If you bring up that word Lyme at the wrong time and at the wrong place, you could have denial of care. You could be treated as if you're uh, mentally ill. Um, there, there's big issues with that. So something, you know, and I, and I don't think people who are real really care what it's called, whether it's called Lyme or whether it's called multimicrobial systemic, systemic infection. Um, or in Australia, they've got a term now that they're, they're recommending, which is DSCAT, um, debilitating symptom complexes attributed to ticks, um, which I guess in Australia allows a window for the medical community to start to kind of look at things. But... Um, yeah, I don't think people really care what it's called. Uh, they just want treatment and want to be and want to be rid of it, really, you know, if, if possible. So um, the scientists care, the doctors care. And, they do. So and it's important, and it's important for them to care. But that's a such a a wall between the communication between the layperson and the specialist that it, like you said, it can have catastrophic consequences just based on one word. Yes, and that's and it's why really and I'm going to get on the soapbox here. I just want it's okay. not the layperson's responsibility to do the translating; it's the professional's responsibility. It's like Correct. they they have to hear and to to shut down. Anyway, I'm just getting all fired up here about that. Like well, you that's, just uh, you know, it's like so. I've been to, I've been preaching for a long time. Is look when you go when you go visit your physician, don't bring up Lyme. Say you got bit by a tick. I may have some infection. And the CDC, the Centers for Disease Controls here in the U.S., has a lovely brochure actually on tick-borne infections and lists a whole bunch of them. And if if you keep the at this point, the, we still have to keep the doctor's mind open by not bringing yes. up Lyme disease. 
And uh, I just got mad about it for the first time. <laughs> it, it's a shame. But I mean, uh, the, the, actually, when I did the research for the book, uh, there's a couple of statistics that really did surprise me the most. Um, and one of them is in the U.S., just general misdiagnosis is at a rate of 10 to 20 percent. So whatever and that's. If the doctor decides you actually have an illness, because when you go into the doctor's office, there's actually a 50 percent chance that he's going to think that you're making it up. And that's crazy that those two statistics were just just surprised me the most that you've got a 50 percent chance when you walk in with any disease that you have that the doctor is actually going to decide that it's a real disease and you need treatment for it. And then out of that. You know, it's 10 to 20 percent that are going to be misdiagnosed. You know, and I'd also like to make the case I have zero evidence for this, that there are going to be regional differences, too, based on the community. Like around here, uh, central New York, there's a MS study and an MS specialist. And I'm convinced, although I don't know for a fact, that a bunch of those MS patients are actually have some of these multi-systemic inf- infections, multi-microbial infections that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I think w- here we may even have a higher than 10 to 20%, you know, maybe it's 25, 30%. And that's, that's a lot of people walking around with the wrong label who are suffering needlessly. Right. right. Um, well, the other thing that surprised me is that, it's still amazing, really, that family who might have known you your, your, your whole life, mm. they you know meet a doctor for three minutes, five minutes, and then they decide the doctor just knows you know what's going on and that's it. And they might abandon the family member. That, that really did surprise me a lot. So it's not uncommon, unfortunately, with Lyme. You see it all the time in the forums, you know, on, on the Internet, there be people talking about that. Losing their family. Did that happen to you? No. It did not. Oh, thank goodness. Um, right. And that's what I'm saying. It amazes me that, you know, family and friends just, you know, they, they just don't believe it. It's, it's, it's a shame. It really is a shame. Um, but it's, it's what's happening. And that's, that's another reason why I wrote this book that, um, hopefully, you know, these family members can read it and, and come to understand what, what's actually going on. Because if they read the book, they'll see, they should be able to see what's happening with their family member and be able to match things from the book with, with what's going on and what they're seeing in the home. And when did you first get sick? Uh, 2012, uh, 1st of November. You remember the day? Exactly. Because, um, I flew, uh, there, there was actually a, an air show and I flew my aircraft to the side of the air show, uh, the night before. And uh, that I went to the air show that day, and that night I fell extremely ill. Um, but that was like three weeks to almost three weeks to the date of having cleaned out a, a shed in, in the backyard. My mother and father passed away um, a year or two before that. So um, I just went back to Australia to clean out a shed and, you know, take care of things and get some of my property out of it and, you know, just deal with all of that. Um, but there were rat carcasses, fleas, mites whatever in, in that shed um, I was covered in it covered in everything and um, I would have taken more precautions if actually you know these diseases were were talked about in Australia 
um, and they're, they're not really. So um, I felt that I didn't have to take as you know as many precautions as I really should have in cleaning out that that backyard shed. Um, yeah, so it definitely three three weeks to the day. I didn't. I don't remember seeing a rash. I may not have had one, and you know if it was one, I can't I can't remember it. The EM rash, the ethrom migrans uh, rash, that's a telltale sign of Lyme. Um, yeah, I don't I don't remember seeing that. So then two years bed bound after that, two years couch bound, and then two years getting out and about one or two days a week, which is where I'm at now. Um, so about eight months ago, I was diagnosed um, in Sydney. I had to go to Sydney to see a doctor there. And now that I know how fortunate I am because um, he, he brought up Lyme and, and I thought that's what it was, but I wasn't sure if I should talk about it. Um, and then we did the tests. We sent the blood, you know, blood and urine tests. We sent them over to America, Hygienics. And um, you know, the Borreliosis Western block came back. It showed that I had uh, 31 48 and uh, sorry, 31, 41 and 58 as reactive on, on that Western blot. And I had a hint of Babesia duncani and um, yeah, positive for Bartonella, Bartonella ancilla. Um, so those co-infections. Um, but with those bands, if, uh, as Horowitz says, I've, you know, I've won the Lyme bingo. So 31 is the outer surface protein. So that's Lyme specific. Uh, 41 is a presence of uh, flagella or the tail protein, but many bacteria have that. Um, and 58 uh, could be the Lyme heat shock protein. So, uh, but you know, it could be cross-reactive uh, with the other infections I have. So Bartonella might be cross-reactive with something else and showing up uh, band 31. So tests are not a great um, real diagnosis of, of things. Um, and I think everybody who you know, goes through Lyme and this kind of thing knows that the tests aren't really reliable. And uh, Horowitz, I think it is, says it's a coin flip, 50% chance that anything is going to show up. Um, and the, you know, I, I did have a test in Korea for Lyme, and that was the, the first stage of the CDC route that you go through. And that was negative. Um, the, ELISA, the, the ELISA test. Yes. And did uh, you have that immediate or fairly close to a after you were bit? Or not no, bit, I, but I'm sorry, we got no, sick. Yes, yeah, no, like five years later. Oh, and it's and it's still and it was still negative, right? Huh. Um, but you know, I went and did the hygienics, and they came back uh, yeah. positive. So, um, but I didn't uh, challenge the bacteria. And you know, a couple of doctors that I've spoken to have actually said, exactly. if you're going to do these tests, try and challenge the bacteria. So that means trying to do a bit of exercise, like walking. Um, getting in the sauna and, you know, sweating for like 20 minutes and, um, you know, just trying to get the, in other words, get the bacteria out of hiding and into the, more into the bloodstream. So Klinghart's uh, doing ultrasound now. Okay. And he has a, it, it targets various organs, including the brain, spleen. I forget the other ones. I think there are five or six different organs. That's interesting. And I, I think it, I think it works because what I've done is uh, taken uh, some medication. I've gone the antibiotic and the herbal route, so I'm doing both at the same time. So I take the herbals uh, before getting in the sauna, and then I feel that day that you know, or the next day that I feel you know something's happened um, more than if I just would have the sauna by itself or the you know the, the medication by itself. So I mean, anything with Lyme, you know, no one's really 100% sure about anything sometimes. So, um, but you know, I think that challenging the bacteria like that does or can be helpful.
And just as a point of reference, Igenix has a new Lime panel out. They do. I haven't looked at it too much. But, it, um, that, it's just recently come out, I think. Right. They, and they put together the Western blot. They have an, another uh, immunoassay, which I think it was, it's a chimera, uh, that they put together, uh, for different proteins. And then the third one is the PCR. And they were saying that in doing all three tests, Based on the results, they get a pretty good idea of what stage the infection is. And I thought, I thought that was very interesting. And also that to catch, to cast such a wide nest, net on the type of testing done. And that, like you said, the cloak of invisibility, which you mentioned before from that quote, it also, the bacteria itself has a cloak of invisibility and it can be right. quite hard to pin down. Right. Uh, that's true. One of the biggest issues, because it can it can coat itself and hide in in different places in the body. So you know, talking about biofilms and things like that. Um, so it is it's very difficult to pick up. And I think that is recognized by researchers that it's a difficult disease to um, to determine if you have. Um, and I think I remember because I've listened to your podcast before. Um, in fact, when I was very, very ill, I couldn't read, couldn't do anything. So all I could do was listen to things. So one of the things I did, did listen to to find out about Lyme was your podcast. Every day I would listen to it. Um, and you would say that, you know, they're thinking that Lyme is difficult to catch and easy to treat. But in fact, it's actually the opposite. Yeah. I forget where I first heard that from, but it's so true. It it is, and it's one of the one of the expressions that I you know I kind of latched onto when I was initially um, diagnosed and, and had to start to think about you know what am I going to do, what treatment am I going to have, and how does this affect me and, and and moving forward. Now, one of the things you have this wonderful appendix in the back of your book that explains the Western blot, the bands, mm. but. Even more importantly than that is you talk about the band intensity and so many, so many people, I'll speak to some, you know, did you get tested for Lyme? Oh yeah. And it came back negative. Well, you know, did they show you the bands? What's a band? You know, and then once you do see a band, it's like, wait a minute, it's not just binary. It's not just yes or no. There's a gradation on how these band intensities. So can you talk a little bit about this test? I know you're not an expert in the test, but you've, you've looked into it. Can you just explain to us in common language what this test is doing, the, the Western blot? Uh, well, when they report on the bands, the, they, they mark them with a level of intensity and it stems from breaking pieces of the bacteria into, into parts and they suspend them in a gel. And then they use electricity to push the antibodies made by the immune system through the gel. And the antibodies then attach to the bacteria and they form a black band. And then that's interpreted on a scale. So you'll have different numbers for that based on the weight of the bacteria. So that would be kilodaltons, so the KDA. So it took me forever to find out and realize what that meant, that <laughs> these are actually the weight of these things. And, and wow. I thought, wow, I didn't, didn't know that. That's quite interesting because nobody really tells you that. Um, none of the doctors will tell you that, and the test doesn't tell you that really either when you get it back. Um, but they do uh, give a scale, so they'd be uh, you know, a negative for you know, not present. There'd be a, a plus sign, one plus sign for low, 
maybe two plus signs for medium, three plus signs for, for high. And uh, you might get a IND or a plus and a negative sign, and that would mean indeterminate, um, which means that the band's present, but not as intense as a low reading. So it's more than, you know, it's there, but it's very, very low. Um, and some Lyme literate doctors may interpret that indeterminate as a very low positive or a weak positive. And that will be done by taking appropriate symptoms into account. And really, that's what's relied on a lot. You know, the clinical diagnosis, what symptoms do you present with or what signs and symptoms do you present with? And um, the doctor would go from there because quite often the Lyme tests are not, you know, as we know, they're not accurate. Um, and I think the two-stage test, the two-stage Lyme test compared to the two-stage HIV test, I think it, it's like 500 times inaccurate if you compare both of those. I the two stories I like to tell about the the test and the first one was uh, I was at a Lyme conference put on by Mount Sinai and they're like big data people and researchers as you know will follow the money and some of them mm -hmm. are starting to see some funding pathways with with Lyme disease and to support their their fundamental research and one I never forget this one young researcher from the West Coast from San Diego stood up and said, and it's only a scientist could, right? He says, you know, we found it very interesting. And translate that, you guys are complete idiots. We found it very interesting that the technology you're using to diagnose Lyme disease is 50 years old. He said, in, yes. in the HIV test, we've come a long way and we're really quite frankly shocked that that you have not made progress with that so we think there's an opening there to make some progress so right. he's not right. going to come out and say you know all you idiots out there is like what how how the heck can you even treat this disease if you can't diagnose for it and right so there's 500 times more false negatives for lyme than for the two-stage hiv testing yeah. i mean that, that's quite incredible exactly Exactly. And then the second one, I'm going to have my Lyme moment and just, I totally forgot the other story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that happens to all of us with, uh, with Lyme and cognition issues sometimes. Oh. So you talk about now that you're, you're getting out once a week or twice a, a week now. Do, now that you've been diagnosed and had some treatment, do you feel yet like you're starting to make some progress or are you, how are you feeling about where you are right now and, and the uh, future? Well, the, the, uh, I've gone the antibiotic route and the herbal route. So the herbal route has been constant. The antibiotic route, I changed, uh, about four, you know, I did four months of, um, three different ones and then, uh, changed one out to a different one. And, um, you know, when changing that one out, yeah, definitely a massive improvement began. And so it seems to be every three to four months is when a, a big change will happen. And um, I'll, I'll reach that next step. Um, and hopefully I don't plateau like a lot of people do, but definitely, definitely moving forward. You know, most definitely with treatment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't get treatment, you're not going to move forward um, is what I, what I really do believe that. 
but unfortunately it costs a lot of money, a lot of money. And it's costing me, um, you know, cause I'm getting the antibiotics shipped in from overseas cause I can't get them where I'm living. And you know, the, I, I don't really want the diagnosis to be uh, registered here because then my employer may get, uh, make it notice of that, but not that it's going to change anything. Cause I'm still being, I'm still luckily able to do my job and what's required. And I know a lot of people are not, um, but you know, the, the cost of things is quite simply um, double what I'm earning. Our, our household income is, is you know, what I'm spending every month on treatment is double what, what our household income is. One of the things people talk about here in the States, uh, and, and I mean, it's partially a, a medical conversation. It's partially a political conversation. It's partially an ideological and philosophical conversation. But here in the States, you'll have people in, in similar situations spending way more in treatment than they're making mm. and say, oh, if we only had a single payer system, this would all be handled. And I've spoken with enough people internationally who are in countries with single payer that it's not necessarily the case because then you also have just the access to care or access to diagnosis. As you said, in Australia, there's, you know, if you bring up Lyme disease, the chances of you uh, getting treated uh, th- through the system is is slim and none. Right. Um, and that's why I think there's about four different groups of Lyme patients. I think there's a group that just goes back to the basics, like alternative treatment and focusing on diet. And then there's two groups that follow either the CDC guidelines or the ILADS, the International Lyme and, Associ- International Lyme and Association Diseases Society, I think it is, mm-hmm. um, their guidelines. And I think there's a fourth group that generally is left to fend for themselves, no access to a doctor and no financial means of seeing one. Now, why? I'm sorry. Hmm. Oh, no, go ahead. And why did you choose to combine antibiotics and herbals? Many people are well, in the either-or camp. It's like, oh, we're going to go all this way. I don't believe in that, you know, herbal kitchen stuff. And other people are like, oh, I don't believe in antibiotics. And here you are embracing both. Well, the treatment that I got previously from doctors, you know, leading up to diagnosis didn't give me a lot of trust in antibiotics or, um, you know, the medical community. But I did think if I want to kill this thing really, really quickly and just kill everything, antibiotics would do it. Um, but that was before I researched anything about Lyme, knowing that antibiotics, once you're on them, you should not go off them because if you, if you do, um, you know, you, you, you know, things may come back worse. So, um, yeah, I probably would have thought about the antibiotics a little bit longer and introduced them later if I had have actually done the research first um but herbals i you know i probably would not have embraced those earlier on but going through trying to get a diagnosis i tried anything and everything and part of that was herbals and things like that and they did help but i'm you know was i was didn't know my diagnosis and i was randomly throwing things at it um but the herbals did help a lot more than anything else so um i i really did think that 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 would be a gentler approach that could be sustainable over a longer time. And there's really two big ones, the Booner protocol, I think it is, and the Cowden protocol. 
So those were the two that I was looking at. And the doctor recommended Cowden because it kind of covers everything. Whereas Booner, you really would be picking a specific approach to treat. So you would be choosing one specific disease or one specific bacteria over another and following those things, even though some of the herbs do cross over. So um, I chose to go with the Cowden protocol because it just hits everything that I would, you know, it, because the tests are inaccurate. So you don't really know what you have. But I did have um, extreme uh, symptoms for Bart Bartonella. So I had the striae turn up, you know, the purple marks, the stretch marks, all of that. So definitely had that, the foot pain, all those issues. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I chose those two routes for those reasons. I think that's pretty wise. Are, are you concerned about your gut biome and what the antibiotics are doing to that? Yes. Um, but of course, you know, originally I wasn't because I didn't do the research on, on that. And you know, later when I did the research for the book, all of this other information came out. I've never had gut issues. So I've been very fortunate with that. And um, even though I've been on the antibiotics eight months now, um, I still don't have gut issues. I've been taking the probiotics, um, you know, three times a day and, you know, one or two hours away from the, uh, the antibiotics to make sure that, you know, the gut is still okay. But I, I've never had gut issues. So I'm very, very fortunate, I think, in that regard. Now, I want to begin to wrap up our conversation. You've been okay. incredibly generous with your time and your energy and your spoons, by the way. Thank you. Mm. And in closing, what's, what's the pearl that you want to give people with this book? And I know you've said it before, but I want to give you another chance to restate that. It's like, what, what do people need to know? Like, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to title this podcast was kind of, it may, may be our lead podcast for, you know, what to do when you're first diagnosed. Cause I mean, I think your book is, you know, it goes into the history. It covers everything. Uh, it's so comprehensive uh, and it has the resources if you want to take the deeper look behind what you're saying. So it's, it's a lovely starting off point, but what, what do you want to tell people who are just being diagnosed? Well, I think the important thing, if you're just diagnosed, is to know as much about what you have because you can't treat it or choose a treatment without knowing what you have and how to fight it. And you need family support or support from somebody, uh, friends or a caregiver, because without that, no one's going to stand up for you in front of a doctor. The doctors are going to tell you what you have, what your experience is, is impossible. And without having somebody there to say, no, it isn't, I've seen it, they're not going to believe just you. So uh, it, it's a book that um, sets out to answer every question that you might have about Lyme disease and co-infections and attempts to answer all of your questions about it. And each chapter is a different is a different question. Um, so, you know, what is Lyme? How to remove a tick? Um, what's, you know, what should and shouldn't you eat uh, for a long time? Um, you know, how to build up the immune system? What does it feel like to have Lyme? So all of these initial questions that you have, all the questions that you might ask on a, on a forum or something like that, 
all of these questions are addressed in this book and they're addressed with research and they're addressed with statistics. And uh, even if you find it very difficult to read the book because you, you have cognition issues, any of these main points I made into infographics and put them in the back of the book. So if you can't remember or can't take in the information, you can look at the pictures and the statistics in, in a graphical format in the back of the book. Yeah, it's beautifully, beautifully done. And where can people get your book? Uh, well, I suppose that's a good question. Uh, it's actually <laughs> available. Uh, it's available uh, from Amazon, and it's in ebook format. Uh, you know, so you can download it for the Kindle, or you can get it in a in a paperback. Um, yeah, and it's quite. Uh, you know, it is quite comprehensive. It's um, you know, around four hundred pages, I think. Um, so yeah, it covers a lot of ground and it covers all the initial questions that anybody, you know, family, friends and caregivers and, and even yourself as, as a patient um, would, would want to find out the information for. Don't be intimidated by the 400 pages. I would I don't know the number, but approaching half of that is references or right. or notations Uh footnotes. Well, they're not footnotes because they're at the end of the chapter. What are they called when they're chapter notes? Uh, end notes end or notes. references. So right. each, the, well, the book's really being designed that if you know, if you buy the book and you're focusing on one particular question, then you only need to read that chapter. Each chapter can be read standalone. And, uh, you know, if you need to give a chapter to a family or a friend, then, you know, uh, you could just pass on that chapter for them to read. Um, and that way it's, it's, you know, even though there's, it's very comprehensive and there's a lot of data in there, um, you know, it's it's not going to be too taxing to read. It's uh, I made sure that, uh, you know, a couple of uh, medical doctors and clinicians have read through the book to make sure it's accurate. And I've made sure that, um, you know, just some of my friends have read the book to, to make sure that they can understand everything and they're lay people. So it's very easy to read and it's very comprehensive. I just realized we have not named your book. The name of the book uh, is The Lime Book. It is. It's The Lime Book for Family, Friends, and Caregivers. And the author is David Kent. And David, thank you. You've been very generous with your time. It's been a lovely conversation. That's that. <laughs> thank, yeah, thank, thank you very much. Yeah, it's wonderful to talk to you. And I'm, you know, I'm very pleased to be able to um, get information about the book out and, and Really, I didn't write it for, for everybody. I wrote it really for myself and my family. But I hope that it can, uh, you know, if, if it helps at least one person, then, um, you know, I think it's worth having written that book. You know, the, before I let you go, that brings up such an important point. I'm not sure, you know, in some cases, like great composers, they wrote uh, a piece for uh, a, a sponsor. Uh, somebody mm. who is, who is paying them, but you know, who are they really writing for? They're writing for themselves. And I, I, that's what comes through. That's, that is what comes through with your book is the love and the care that went into the crafting of this book. Cause it is meticulously crafted. And it's, it's like my, my daughter just come, came back from uh, a little time in Japan and she visited uh, some international like uh, the building and I forget what city in Japan where the, where the foreign dignitaries stay. And part of this was essentially this building is a living museum and was put together by master craftsmen. And uh, they call them living national treasures in Japan. And these, these work people, 
men and women have such exquisite skill and talent and they put such love into what they're doing that it just, it shines through. They become national treasures. And this book is that kind of treasure. I can't recommend it highly enough. Go out there, spend a few bucks, get this book, use it for yourself, give it to your family. It will make a massive difference. Thank you very much for saying that. I'm really pleased to hear that. This was a really great interview, and I was able to look through the book and the amount of information that's in it and the amount of like easily accessible information, which I really appreciated, honestly, the, the, how easy it was to understand, um, is something that I cannot emphasize enough. And it really goes back to what you were saying about being able to translate these kind of scientific and medical terminology into something that lay people can understand and kind of vice versa. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. There's no doubt about it. And for those of you who listened all the way to the end, guess what? We've got free books to give away. We do. So that's your reward. Congratulations. David has very generously given us five copies. He had them shipped to us, and we will ship them out to you. So all you have to do, it's first come, first serve. For the first five people who email us, we'll get a book. So don't wait. Just send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com and put the Lime book in the subject. So literally write the Lime book in the subject. And And that's just not about some random Lime book. It's the name of the book. It's the Lime book. The Lime book. Yes. So again, that's LimeNinjaRadio.com. Feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. Sorry about that. Feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com and put the Lime book in the subject line. The first five people, we will send them right out to you. They're sitting on my desk right now, just waiting for you. Don't wait. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, please share this interview with a friend. And if you really like what we're doing, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. You know, the new iTunes podcast app in on the iPhone has the review right there. So if you click on the episode, it'll take you to a page. You can leave a review right away. It's easier. They're making it easier. It is. It's, it is a lot. Leave us a review. It's a big deal. It really is. The more reviews we get, the more people know we're here, the more information about Lyme gets out there. And that said, if you really, really like what we're doing, I'd appreciate it. If you donate $1 a month through Patreon. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and click on the Patreon link. Yes. Also, a big shout out to our newest patrons, Ginger and Meredith. Thank you so much. For just $1, you can help us make the world a better place for people with tick-borne diseases. Yes. Again, just head on over to our new homepage, www.LimeNinjaRadio.com and look for the Patreon link under the How Can We Help You section. And lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know when ninjas put toast in the toaster, it comes out bread?
Mind Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique, and Mind Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Mind Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.